0: The 1992 presidential election featured three candidates vying for the office of the presidency. Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, President George Bush, trying to retain his position as president, and Texas businessman Ross H. Perot, who made the following statement.
1: You can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25, that's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor have no health care that's the most expensive single element making a car have no environmental controls no pollution controls and no retirement and you don't care about anything but making money there will be a giant sucking sound going south
0: that was perhaps the most memorable statement from the 1992 town hall debate held at the campus of the university of richmond virginia october 15 1992. it aptly described What the New World Order would mean for jobs, especially manufacturing jobs, under the proposed North American Free Trade Agreement. However, the job-sucking sound (laughs) for vacuuming and manufacturing jobs had already occurred and had happened to a specific class of people who are known to be the last to be hired and the first to be fired. This is From Black Power to Black Trauma, a podcast series that explores phantom politics in the post-civil rights era. I'm Norman Kelly. In episode five, we will examine the transformation of the black working class into the underclass, exploring how the economic situation of blacks turns them into a social problem. Without belaboring an obvious historical fact, enslaved Africans were brought to the New World. For one reason, and one reason only. No, no, no. Not entertainment. That came later. I'm talking about this reason. Labor. King Cotton. The peculiar institution. Drapetomia. We were slaves. We belonged to people. They sell us like they sell horses and cows and hogs and all like that. have a... Auction bench and they put you on a, up on the bench and bid on you, the same as you're bidding on the you know. Was that in Charlotte that you were a slave? Hmm? Was that in Charlotte or Charlottesville? That in Charlotte, Charlottesville.
1: Charlottesville, Virginia.
0: Selling women, selling men. Oh, that's... Fountain Hughes, a graduate of the Peculiar Institution, recorded in 1949. No group in American society, Roe Piven and Clover, has been as subjected to the extremes of economic exploitation as blacks. Each change in their relationship to the economic system has mainly represented a shift from one form of extreme economic subjugation to another. From slaves to cash tenants and sharecroppers, from cash tenants and sharecroppers to the lowest stratum in an emerging southern rural free labor system. And finally, to the status of an urban proletariat characterized by low wages and high unemployment. In effect, the black poor progressed from slave labor to cheap labor to, for many, no labor at all. Those with foresight and knowledge knew it was coming. Since the end of the Second World War, the concentration of entry-level jobs, especially in manufacturing, had been decreasing in central cities and rising in the suburbs. This would greatly impact the Black working class in the poor. Adding to the oncoming pressure were Blacks pinned in by residential segregation in the same central city. From 1910 and 1920, Roughly half a million Blacks left the South and headed North and West, in what has been called the Great Migration. It was this wave of black migrants who spurred by the need for industrial workers that led to the development of the urban black working class in northern cities. Yet often overlooked was an even greater migration of 1.5 million blacks who had left the South from 1940 to 1950 and another 1.5 million who had decamped the region during the next decade. Crowded tenements, second-rate education, and a lack of jobs made a combustible mixture in the northern cities. And while the Southern-based civil rights movement was mostly organized to remove white supremacist conditions from the lives of Southern blacks, leaders of the movement also knew and were concerned about the conditions of northern blacks who were corralled in decrepit northern circumstances, also known as ghettos. In the view of Douglas S. Massey and Nancy A. Denton in American apartheid, segregation, and the making of the underclass, it was the migration of blacks to the north, pulled in by industrialization, by restricted to urban centers that laid the foundation of residential segregation that prohibited blacks from moving up and out to the suburbs as the generation of immigrants. More Negroes are unemployed today than in 1954, and the unemployment gap between the races is wider, Bayer Rosen wrote in 1964. The median income on Negroes has dropped from 57% to 54% of that of whites. A higher percentage of Negro workers is now concentrated in jobs vulnerable to automation than was the case 10 years ago. The lack of employment in black urban centers has been a source of concern for years and was at the heart of the 1963 March on Washington as well as basic civil rights. But as Kenneth B. Clark, the psychologist and author of the Dark Ghetto remarked, the masses of Negroes are starkly aware of the fact that recent civil rights victories benefited a very small percentage of middle-class Negroes while their predicament remained the same or worsened. In Workers on Arrival, Black Labor in the Making of America, Joe William Trotter Jr. noted that the Black Urban Industrial Working class nearly disappeared by the early 1990s, and between 1997 and 1987, the manufacturing sector declined by 64% in Philadelphia, 60% in Chicago, 58% in New York, and 51% in Detroit. From 1945 and onward, the black working class would be buffeted by automation, suburbanization of jobs, deindustrialization, and globalization. And, as attested by Russell and his prescient article, From Protest to Politics, we are in the midst of a technological revolution which is altering the fundamental structure of the labor force, destroying unskilled and semi skilled jobs, jobs in which Negroes are disproportionately concentrated as King himself performed a mostly white audience at Grosse Point in 1968, weeks before his assassination. We find in the other America, unemployment constantly rising to astronomical proportions and black people generally find themselves living in a literal depression. All too often, when there is mass unemployment in the black community, it's referred to as a social problem. And when there is mass unemployment in the white community, is referred to as a depression, but there is no basic difference. The fact is that the Negro faces a literal depression all over the U.S. Black workers would decline from a peak of roughly 25% of the national workforce in the 1980s to just over 10% as the 21st century began. Deindustrialization would mostly hit blacks first in the 1950s and the 1960s. But the process rolled through the rest of manufacturing America, hitting the white working class by the 1970s and 1980s, as described by Barry Bluestone and Harrison Bennett in The Deindustrialization of America Plant Closing, Community Abandonment, and the Dismantling of Basic Industry. However, the two authors noted how plant closelies especially affected blacks. They are increasingly concentrated within central cities and in the regions of the country where plant closings and economic dislocations have been most pronounced. While Blacks constituted 16% of all central city residents in 1960, before the recent spat on northern-based shutdowns, they accounted for 22% of the urban population in 1975. Similarly, Blacks and other people of color did not share in the suburban housing and business boom of this period. In other words, the old maxim of the last to be hired and the first to be fired had a basis in social reality. In The Origins of the Urban Crisis, Race and Inequality in Detroit, Thomas J. Segrude noted how the 1940s had been a rare window for blue-collar workers in Detroit, especially for African-Americans. During World War II, the number of entry-level jobs in manufacturing grew so fast in Detroit that discriminatory barriers had lost some of their salience. Even as large segments of the Detroit labor market remained largely closed to black workers, they still found operative jobs in their automotive industry and in other related industries during the wartime and post-war boom. The decline of manufacturing in Detroit in the 1950s, however, hit black workers with real force. Rates of unemployment and joblessness in Detroit rose steadily beginning in the 1950s among African Americans. While deindustrialization hit blacks first in manufacturing in America, the oncoming wave of economic structural change were also occurring in other sectors like mining and were being felt in the US and the UK. British based Fiona Hill, a former Russian specialist on the National Security Council of the United States government, noted, quote, that the fate of my home area in the United Kingdom was that of every other major mining. Community in the Appalachian region, stretching from Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia in the south, up to West Virginia, Ohio, and then Pennsylvania in the north. Listen to what else she said.
1: Because what was happening in that period of the 1980s was the massive closure of the main manufacturing sectors in the United Kingdom against the backdrop of reforms under the government of Margaret Thatcher. So, in the period From about 1981 to 1984, all of the major manufacturing plants and factories and enterprises in the north of England just seemed to close down at once. In my region, the coal mines had already been closing in a kind of a long period of closures from the 1960s onwards.
0: While Hill was in the Soviet Union, she saw something similar.
1: And it was the same kind of thing that I saw then repeated over time in the Soviet Union, where I then went off to study and eventually in the United States.
0: Deindustrialization was a worldwide phenomenon in manufacturing as those industries changed. But where did it happen first in the United States? Well, we know who it hit.
1: But what we've seen in the United States, and especially since the 2008-2009 recession, is the worsening of socioeconomic circumstances and the growing divide between the haves and the have-nots in the US, and perhaps the people used to have it before. We've seen an awful lot of polarization based on growing inequality.
0: Fiona Hill, a daughter of deindustrialization, This is the root of what King saw as the disparity of how what happens to blacks was often defined as a social problem, meaning some inherent defect intrinsic to blacks, but an economic structural problem, a depression, when it affected whites. It was bad enough that automation and the decline of manufacturing made it difficult for black workers to find jobs in major urban centers from the 1950s in Orangeburg, but the moving of manufacturing plants to the suburbs were places generally inhospitable to blacks. Following the migration of jobs to the south was not an appealing option. After all, blacks had left there to get away from the most vicious forms of white supremacy in that region. The 1950s, the post-war era of the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet and happy days were often seen as the golden period of a booming post-war era and also marked for its naivete. It was for millions of whites. However, it was also the era that began the slow destruction of the black working class that sought to get a foothold in the era of prosperity but had it yanked from them with the changes in the economy. After securing the basic civil rights of blacks via the Public Accommodation and Voting Acts in 1964 and 1965, respectively, the new phase of the black freedom struggle was economics. This was the impetus of going from protest to politics for Randolph, Rustin and the King, and others. The modern civil rights leaders knew of the condition facing northern blacks in the urban ghettos. In doing so, allies would be needed. Allies were not Needed solely because they were white, but because automation and deindustrialization was coming for the white sector of the working class as well. And a united front and programs that would have been the best way to deal with the forthcoming ravages that deindustrialization would bring. Labor leader A. Philip Randolph sought to alleviate the social problem of urban blacks with a freedom budget, which never saw the light of day. Acts explored in Episode 2, The Lost Agenda. The Johnson Administration Great Society Program and the War on Poverty contained in the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964 were the largest federal economic programs. While the government programs contained job training, there was no component job-creating programs, unlike that of the New Deal, which actually put people to work. But even then... Any funds earmarked for poverty programs were lessened due to the war in Vietnam. By 1968, all the programs were mere shells of the robust 1964 promises, as the administration budget, resources, energy, and all their political capital were pulled towards Southeast Asia. In total, a series of related and unrelated events stalled the economic agenda of the civil rights movement, the rise of black power, the shifting of the war on poverty to a war on crime, to a war on drugs aimed at blacks, a series of urban revolts which prompted the war on crime, white backlash, the Johnson administration focused on the war in Vietnam, and most importantly, the assassination of Martin Luther King. From the mid-1960s to the mid-1980s, the black working class was being decimated, being transformed into an underclass due to the radical changes in the economic structure of American capitalism. The leading civil rights activists who were concerned about this destruction, King, Randolph, Russ, and others, were ignored, called Uncle Tom's, or had been assassinated. The hot ticket from the late 60s to the early 70s was black power nationalism. Black power, the calling for a black nation, and the hoisting of the black community barrier which some of the black middle class used to match its class interests were the ideological coins of the realm. Yet, the one stratum that could have made an issue of what was happening to the people made no mention of what was happening to working class black people. Meaning, the reality that they were losing jobs were the black power militants. However, the plight of blacks as workers wasn't an issue. In 1972, Amiri Baraka and others gathered at the National Black Political Convention in Gary, Indiana, and issued the National Black Political Agenda, which was proposed to be a blueprint for black empowerment in the era of self determination. Yet, in the seven areas that listed as critical for the future of Black America, political development, economic empowerment, human development, rural development, foreign policy, environmental protection, and communication, Blacks as workers were never mentioned and what their needs were. The Gary Declaration, Black Politics at the Crossroads, a preamble, vaguely mentioned that, quote, our cities are crime-haunted dying grounds, and that, quote, huge sectors of our youth and countless other faced permanent unemployment, but nothing mentioned the scope of the destruction via automation that King, Randolph, and Rustin had discussed earlier. Neither unions nor that blacks had been in them and were losing entry-level union jobs were mentioned, only collective bargaining for District of Columbia employees. In other words, the very people most likely to have experienced so-called black trauma, the increasingly displaced black working class, were not even mentioned. Blacks as a nation, or the black community, became the catch-all phrase that conveniently smushed out the reality that a specific class of blacks workers were being left out of the picture. The rising class of black electoral officials and aspiring class of lower middle class and middle class black activists would use the rhetoric of blackness as their counterparts in the third world used the ideology of national consciousness as stepping stones to their own narrow agenda. A deceit that France would not outline in The Wretched of the Earth. They would, as James Brown was saying, be talking loud but saying nothing. Where did these workers go? Where did they go? Victor Hugo, writing in Les Misérables, offered a hint. Each took a different path, perhaps sinking little by little into the chilling haze that swallows up solitary destinies, that sullen gloom where so many ill-fated souls are lost in the somber advance of the human race. These people disappear into the underclass. What did these people do? What happens when work disappears? Metaphorically, the four horsemen of the urban apocalypse appear. Crime, drugs, violence, mass incarceration. As William Julius Wilson wrote when work disappears, neighborhoods plagued by high levels of joblessness are more likely to experience low levels of social organization. The two go hand in hand. High rates of joblessness trigger other neighborhood problems that undermine social organization, ranging from crime, gang violence, and drug trafficking to family breakups and problems in the organization of family life. Neighborhoods plagued by high levels of joblessness, insufficient opportunities, and high residential mobility are unable to control the volatile drug market and the violent crimes related to it. And the job losses were immense, as Wilson noted. The manufacturing losses in some northern cities have been staggering. In the 20-year period from 1967 to 1987, Philadelphia lost 64% of its manufacturing jobs. Chicago lost 60%. New York City, 58%. Detroit, 51%. In absolute numbers, these percentages Represent the loss of, of 160,000 in Philadelphia, 326,000 in Chicago, 520,000, over half a million in New York, and 108,000 in Detroit. As noted by Joe William Trotter Jr., still, despite significant differences from city to city, high rates of unemployment, and low and inadequate incomes and new service sector jobs. Underlay the spread of poverty across black urban America. In the central city, African-American poverty increased by 74%, rising from 3.1 million to 5.4 million people between 1969 and 1972, while inner-city whites living in poverty rose by 52%, 9.7 to 14.5 million. As stated before, the consequences of this socioeconomic dysfunction was the high level of intercommunal violence. Wilson observed, between 1985 and 1992, there was a sharp increase in the murder rate among men under the age of 24. For men 18 years and older and younger, murder rates doubled. Black males in particular have been involved in this upsurge. Note the high homicide rates over a 54 year period in the post civil rights era, which includes the years that Wilson cited. While the Nixon administration, as examined in Episode 4, used the war on drugs as a cover for its political vendetta against the anti war movement and militant blacks, working class and middle class blacks felt they were under siege by the enemy within their neighborhood. Heroin. Heroin was such an epidemic in cities such as New York that even soul brother number one, the godfather, James Brown, felt compelled to record a song poem called King Heroin in 1972. In 1973, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller signed into law one of the most draconian drug laws in the country. As Argued by Michael Javin Fortner in The Black Silent Majority, shifting focus from structural problems to individual behavior, after tilting the discursive terrain in the direction of racial equality during the struggle of the civil rights movement, working class and middle class African Americans tilted it in favor of punitive crime policies and against economic justice for the urban black poor. As a result, the black silent majority created an important opportunity for the ambitious governor to achieve his own goals and lay the groundwork for mass incarceration. Earlier it was asked, where do these people who have no work go? What happens to the redundant population? Each took a different path, perhaps sinking little by little into the chilling haze that swallows up solitary destinies, that sullen gloom where so many ill-fated souls are lost in the somber advance of the human race or into the maw of the prison industrial complex. This has been From Black Power to Black Drama. I'm Norman Kelly. Thank you for listening. Audio recording of Fountain Hughes, courtesy of the United States Library of Congress. Audio recording of Fiona Hill, courtesy of Dollars and Cents. A Brookings Institution podcast. An editorial correction. I misspoke when I said that Fiona Hill was British-based. I meant she was British-born. She became a naturalized U.S. citizen. She's also a good example of why the United States should encourage immigration. She, like former Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, are naturalized U.S. citizens who believe in American values more so than some native-born Americans. Until next time.